Hello and welcome to Spawned, a common sense, generally fun, and hopefully helpful discussion on parenting and parenting culture. Hey, I'm Kristen Chase, and along with Liz Gumbiner, we're the co-founders of CoolMomPicks.com. Liz is away today, so I'm holding down the fort, but lucky me, I've got a special guest, author Lisa Selen Davis, who I'll be chatting with about her new book. Tomboy, the surprising history and future of girls who dare. And as always, we will close out our show with our cool picks of the week. But before we get to speaking with Lisa, I want to tell you a little more about her. Lisa Selen Davis is an essayist, novelist, and journalist who has written for major publications, some of which you might know like New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Women's Day. Gosh, there are so many amazing publications. She lives with her family in New York. And what we love is that her articles have opened the door to both debate and celebration. But what we're going to be talking about today came from a recent article that's December 2018 that she wrote for the New York Times called Like Tomboys and Hate Girly Girls, That's Sexist. And turns out it went viral. And now she has a new book, Tomboy, The Surprising History and Future of Girls Who Dare. And that is what we will be discussing today. Welcome, Lisa. Thank you very much for having me. So I am so excited about this book. And, you know, it's gotten me thinking because I have three girls and one boy in my home. And the word tomboy brings up so many images in my mind. And I'm wondering, can you just get into a little bit about the history of the term? Because I think we've all heard of it. We're familiar with it. But where did it come from? Yeah, it has a fascinating trajectory. It was coined in the 1500s to describe an extra rowdy kind of misbehaving boy because the word Tom means male type, like Tom Cat or Tom Turkey. Mm -hmm. So it was used to describe this rowdy boy. And then pretty soon after that, it was used to describe a lascivious woman who had a sexual appetite that one might have thought rivaled a man's in that sexist idea about women's sexuality. Yes. Um, And a hundred years later, it was used to describe rowdy girls, girls who acted, quote unquote, like boys. And for the first couple of hundred years, it was an insult. This was a bad thing to be. Mm -hmm. And then the 19th century, that began to change quite a bit until it became incredibly fashionable, especially for white upper middle class and middle class people to raise their daughters as tomboys. It became a term of pride. So that's so fascinating how it evolved from being gendered to men and now very specific to women. And you said, okay, this is basically now it's about a rowdy girl, if you will. Is that sort of the official definition or, you know, has it evolved from that to what people use now? You know, what's interesting about it is the word has garnered a lot of criticism for more than a century. And by the end of the 19th century, there started to be people who said either we should call this word Tom Girl or... Or we don't need a word like this because we now know that girls can have these kinds of boyhoods because they don't actually belong to boys at all. But it continued to be in use for all of the 20th century and then had this other heyday in the 1970s where it was popular again and early 80s and then disappeared. And very few people use this term today, but the places you see it showing up the most are in fashion to describe a kind of style, a kind of mass masculine clothing for women, or you see it through a lot of different parts of Asia to describe a kind of butch sexuality. It can be a butch lesbian, but it can also be a trans man. The fuzziness of those boundaries does not 
seem to be as contentious in a lot of Asian countries as it is here. Mm -hmm. So it's rarely applied to kids anymore. I haven't heard it much, you know, and I think when we do hear it, it's always surprising, right? You're like, wait, did you just say that? You know, <laughs> which, right. which is good because, and we'll get to this because you do address kind of right off the bat, the sort of tomboy versus sissy conversation. So I want to get to that. But you said something that really struck me just now. And you said something to the effect of that boyhood used to just belong to boys. That's so striking to me when I say it out loud because it's so true. But I have never heard it phrased like that. Can you talk more about like, would this even exist now in terms of how we use it related to girls? Or I guess as of recent, how we've used it related to girls, if girls were allowed to have, for lack of a better term, a boyhood. Yeah, I find that a lot of people feel that equality has been achieved. And, you know, we had Title IX in the 70s and girls have legal access to everything boys have access to and everything's good now. Uh -huh. <laughs> this is not at all. Well, you say that and I have to laugh. It's so interesting that people think that because access is one thing, right? There are so many levels to this conversation. Anyway, keep going. That's that's a great point to make. So this term boyhood for girls came up a bunch in my research, and it's a really interesting idea. I'll go back to the mid-19th century when it started to become popular for these girls to have quote-unquote boyhoods. That actually has a really racist history because it's about the declining birth rate among American-born whites and about the real unhealthiness of proper femininity at the time, which was corsets and bustles and being frail and all that stuff was feminine, but it was not actually good for procreation or health in general. Hmm. And it's also really only white people who were allowed to claim the term and middle class, upper middle class white people, because if you were enslaved or if you were poor and doing hard physical labor, you wouldn't be a tomboy. You know, you'd be a working child and you would be forced into this kind of masculinity. So it's completely connected to privilege and connected to making healthy girls who have to give it up at puberty and get ready for their proper gender roles. And obviously, we don't have that anymore. Right. <laughs> We're not preparing girls just to make babies. What replaced those messages was a kind of gendered capitalism that now divides every aspect of childhood into pink and blue, every toy, every personality trait, every item of clothing, every color. Yeah, right? absolutely. I mean, we've talked about that so much on this show and on Cool Mom Picks. Over the years, we've seen it, you know, when we started in 2006 until now, like you could only find pink and blue, maybe yellow or green. But overall, it was, and, and it still is, you go to toy stores and things are, are completely genderized, still in 2020. Yeah. It was very effective, not only for selling things, although that's, of course, the primary reason, but also for instilling in people this idea that these preferences are biological. And so many wow. people say to me, I didn't believe it until my kid turned three and then they completely divided by gender and the little one just liked the boy things and the, and the little girl just liked the girl things. And now I understand that it's actually biological, hmm. which is a very, very limited way of looking at what's actually happening when kids line up with gender norms. Because what's 
happening is they're learning how to be proper girls or boys. They have a vested interest in mastering their membership in the group, and they don't realize that their membership in the group is ostensibly about their bodies, though that's contested now, too. But generally, kids are dividing by sex, and they're doing whatever is associated with their sex to master that membership. They don't realize that they don't have to hew to stereotypes in order to be a member of that group. That's so fascinating. I mean, clearly you've done a lot of research on this topic. I mean, you're going back into the 19th century, which I think is important for us to see where we were and where we are now and hopefully where we will be able to go with this. You know, do you, is it is it partially or mostly just what the the input that children and parents are getting from, you know, media and magazines and the messaging from, say, the, you know, over 60 crowd that are, you know, grandparents now, like where where are these messages perpetuated? Is it pervasive or is it a specific place that you see these are coming from most? It's a good question because a lot of people will say, well, I really tried to be gender equitable in my parenting and I just, nothing I did could push back against the tide of gendered preferences. There is a connection between how you parent and what your kids will be interested in, but the truth is they're getting messages from all over about how to be a boy and how to be a girl. They're getting it from the culture. They're getting it from their peers a lot. Mm. I think that we underestimate the impact of kids gender policing one another, hmm. and it's very early. By the Usually by the time they go to preschool, they understand the stereotypes associated with each group, and because they're trying to master their membership in the group, they really police one another and they tell each other that's not for boys and that's not for girls. There's interesting research about what a young child does when they like a toy that doesn't have a clear gender assigned to it. So if a girl picks up a silver balloon and doesn't know if it's a boy toy or a girl toy and really likes it, she will think, oh, silver balloons are for girls because I like it and I'm a girl. The way to interrupt that is to really present them with counter-stereotypical images and ideas from a very early age to really try to stop them from thinking, oh, this isn't for me because I'm not in that category, when the only reason we put those things in those categories was to sell them, but also to make people behave in the limited ways we think they should. You know, that's so interesting as you apply that to parenting, because I think that there are many parents out there at one level or another, whether it's conscious or subconscious, right, know that these things are happening and that we really need to make an effort. Like, there's an actual effort involved for us to say, well, no, actually, anyone can like silver balloons. You know, that doesn't have anything to do with your gender. It just has to do with that you like that color or that tone. But that's an effort that parents have to make, right? Like that's something that we need to be active in whatever we're seeing, whether it's on TV, whether it's something that a child brings home from school or these days sees, you know, since we're all online learning, you know, that they see online and have those discussions with our kids to counterbalance. Is that accurate? Yes, I think there are two parts to what needs to happen. I think we have to push the culture to change and we have to change the messages in our own homes and, and in our schools. I think you can start in your home, you can move to your school, and then you can make cultural demands. And I think 
much the way you have to work with children very early to deal with implicit bias about race, you have to do the same thing with gender. These messages will be fed to them whether we want them to or not. So if we don't want them to have narrow gender beliefs, to think girls are sweet and sedentary and deferential and to think boys are tough and strong and especially for girls to think what matters about me most is my appearance and for boys Mm -hmm. to think what matters most is that I'm strong and don't show my emotions. Both of those are such limiting ideas about who you can be based on your body parts that they're unhealthy and they lead to the larger crises we talk about in relation to boys and girls. With girls, we often talk about low self-esteem and eating disorders. And with boys, we talk about toxic masculinity. Those are the natural outgrowth of the seeds planted so young because of the way we've gendered every aspect of childhood. Yeah, that makes sense for sure. And I love that you talk about a cultural shift. And I also love that you talk about the conversation that I brought up just a few minutes ago, which is the whole tomboy versus sissy. Because I I just don't think you can talk about tomboys without talking about the pink tutued elephant in the room or whatever, which is that we as a society, I think, have been more accepting of girls who are rowdy and tend to lean more, whatever, stronger, more masculine, however we want to describe it in sweeping in sweeping generalizations, and way less accepting of what I could describe as femininity in boys, which is not really femininity. It's just really being an actualized human who is one with their emotions and comfortable expressing them and being who they are, which is sometimes softer and sometimes not so much. So can you talk about this conversation, you know, what needs to happen or what you discovered about that whole like sort of sissy talk as it relates to this conversation? Yeah. I mean, you bring up so many good points. One is there is no word like tomboy on the other side of the binary. There is no cute culturally embraced term for a boy who has more traditionally feminine or stereotypically feminine interests. Mm -hmm. There's Mm -hmm. sissy, there's Nancy boy, and then there's a bunch of homophobic slurs. Going back to the parenting discussion, I've had a lot of conversations with parents about how they have participated in this like devaluing of femininity and and of their son's interests in it. So I hear from dozens and dozens of parents of boys, oh, my son likes dresses and he wanted to wear a dress to school. And I said, you can, but you're going to be made fun of. Or they say, well, all right, you know, go ahead and wear your pink sparkly backpack. And then by the end of the day, the kid comes home and says, well, I'm never doing that again. Right, right. Made fun of me. Yep. And it ended up being clear to me that if we want to get rid of this really artificial and limiting division that says that being kind is a girl thing and being strong is a boy thing, and that really just narrows children's range of normal and keeps them from becoming their whole selves, that it was actually up to the parents of boys to do so. Because as you say, a girl can wear, to a certain extent, can wear sweatpants and hair. I mean, it was not, obviously for us, that caused a lot of tension and confusion in the beginning for everybody from our doctor 
to the kids, you know, in school. So it's not that easy if your kid is really going like full in the opposite direction of stereotypes. But it isn't that threatening to people. Yes. Great differentiation. And, and I know you're getting there, right? But there is this ridiculous feeling of being threatening, I guess you should say, when a man or a boy is seen as being girly. Yeah. You know, parents don't dress their sons in pink. And right. there is nothing inherently gendered about the color pink. So when you don't do that, and when you also, when your kid wants to wear something pink, your son wants to wear something pink, and you talk them out of it or you don't talk to them about like you like this and you can be confident about it and if people make fun of you you give them a lecture about the mm -hmm. history of pink and homophobia which we can talk about in a second but a lot of parents of boys participate in this where they really don't let their sons have access to stuff that's culturally marked as feminine and by default along with that pink shirt is all the good human stuff that's on the pink side of the pink-blue divide. Yes. That's such a great point. There's so much goodness. And, and there's goodness on both sides. But I think the things that are being held back from our boys, and I know it's, you know, funny because we're talking about girls. We're talking about the tomboy conversation. But there are a lot of things being held back from our boys and out of reach to them that are wonderful, beautiful things that make them wonderful, beautiful human beings. Yes, exactly. And it's so artificial and it's so extreme. Mm -hmm. They really believe that they need to participate in it and don't question where it came from or, or how bad it is. I mean, I found very little research on the hypergendering of childhood and what it's doing to children because it's so recent. It's only been since the late 1980s and it's gotten worse with every decade because it's a great way to make money and it's an easy way to organize the world. And I read yes. about buying a Kindle Fire for my kids and it made me choose a gender. Yes. And that every <laughs> TV show and every app and every game, it created a completely different universe. Right. For right. Children. Right. And I don't want that. And when, you know, I signed one of my kids up for Spotify and it gave you, you know, male, female or non-binary, something like that. That. And I said, look, you can choose whatever category, but if you choose boy or girl, it's going to filter your world in a particular way. Right. You're s suddenly going to get Haley Steinfeld and uh, Billie Eilish, right? right? <laughs> I like them. Right, of course. But we also like Juice World and, you know, Post Malone and the things that would probably be fed to boys. Right. And then it's kind of interesting because then the only option is to opt out of those categories and choose the third one. And Maybe that's the solution, but I think not everyone is ready for that. And so until that time, I think really widening what's in the boy and girl category or really not putting things in those categories. I'm not even talking about bodies. I'm saying having this idea that there are boys' toys and girls' toys and even clothes, which I know is hard for the parents of boys. But if your right. son wants to wear dresses, yeah. let your son wear dresses. It's fine. Is it an indication of something? Maybe and also maybe not, right? Right. And we're going to talk about that. But, you know, I love Jonathan Van Ness from Queer Eye, and I believe he identifies as non-binary. But, like, he's always out in fabulous. And I, I think he still uses he, but so I'm probably even using the wrong pronouns, they or he. But forgive me, Jonathan, if you're listening. Um, however, <laughs> he's, an honest take if we're doing it wrong. Yes, right? So, you know, he's wearing heels, he's wearing dresses, and I just love having someone in such a public position feel so free 
and open. And I know that he went through his own struggles with that, you know, being bullied in high school and finally feeling that he was in a place where he could be that way. And I think as parents, we often parent out of fear, right? Like everything we do is, is often out of fear. And particularly, I think in this case, we may not even know we're afraid. Like we know we're like, okay, I don't want my teenager to drive because this is scary and she could crash the car. But this doesn't feel inherently scary, but it is, I think, because it's institutionalized, right? It's something that we've grown up with. We've heard our own parents talk about. And now we're trying to, I don't want to say burst the bubble, but just make a shift, right? Like just giving our girls the ability to be strong and empowered, but also giving our boys that too, you know? So yes, this is a conversation about girls, but boys come into play here because like you said, there are so many things that have been typically off limits to them in their world and still are. And it's funny, I think about my son who's 13 and uh, one of my favorite stories about him is that last year for his birthday, we did a mother-son trip to Minnesota. And on Friday night, we went to a drag show because he loves to watch Drag Race and two of our favorite queens were performing. And then on Saturday night, we went to a Flyers Wilds game. (laughs) And it's like the perfect juxtaposition of, you know, what I want my son to be, right? Is to appreciate makeup and beauty and all the awesome things that the LGBTQ community brings forward. And then also to be like, hey, Sports are cool, too. <laughs> right. And, and why would we need to gender any of those things? Right. right. Exactly. What would we approve of if we'd marked it as masculine? I mean, whenever somebody says, oh, I hate pink, a little kid, I'm kind of like, well, you've been taught to disparage it and everything associated with it. But if we thought pink was for boys, which, of course, it, it was at one point then would we have that many people announcing their hatred of it? I think you need to do a reality show, Lisa, where you visit just kids' birthday parties. And when you hear people make the comments that they do, right, it would be so funny for me and and, and actually fascinating to hear you just kind of be like, well, historically, yeah. well, actually, you know, like you could really point out the, the fallacies yeah. of the things that people are saying. So I'm just, I'm saying if that happens, yeah. people heard it here on Spawn first. Yeah. Okay, so. <laughs> I'm available for that gig to be a child's <laughs> birthday party and lecture everyone. I would love that. <laughs> But you know what I wanted to say was... Yeah, of course. I just set up a little class for my younger daughter who's eight, just like a little after-school thing with three other kids. And I was figuring out who who could do this, Um, someone just to kind of take them on park nature science adventures. Right, right. The woman I hired, I said, oh, I think this local boy can do it. And the woman said, oh, that's good. I think we could use some boy energy. Mm. And... This is a boy who likes dresses, quite feminine, Yep, only wanted to do this because it was with girls. Oh, funny. And I had that thing of like really wanting to lecture. Yeah, like, what do you mean by boy energy? Let's talk about this. (laughs) And in fact, that is what I should have done. Yes, exactly. I should have said, what do you mean by boy energy? Instead, I said, well... You know, this is not a stereotypically masculine kid. This is a kid who likes glitter and rainbows and likes to play with girls. But it was just such, it's whenever 
anyone speaks to me like that, I do still have to figure out how to respond. I'm still working on it. It's much easier for me to write something. Of course, than of course. To be confronted with those kind of gendered beliefs and to hear that from the teacher. Right. What, well, yes. You know? No, absolutely. I can imagine, you know, I joke about the show, right? But it is something that we hear so much, right? And I'm happy to see that we're having more conversations about racism and anti-racism and how that affects our everyday lives. But also those conversations would love to see them as well with gender, right? And I think it's tricky because, again, as the racial issues are pervasive, so is this gender conversation. And we can't get out of talking with you, Lisa, without bringing up this whole gender reveal awfulness, (laughs) right, that has just devastated California. And I find it, you know, we're talking about this. It's, It's timely because the person who supposedly invented gender reveal parties kind of came out because she has a child who does not identify with a specific gender. And then we've got people who are like celebrating whether it's a boy or a girl as if that would be the end all be all with parties that are burning down states. So this is a very timely conversation. And I imagine if people were more informed and were more enlightened, maybe we'd have more forests. I mean, that's like an understatement of the century because there would be a lot more things we would have. But what are your thoughts just in general? I'm I'm guessing I know, but I would love to hear just about the whole gender reveal party situation. Well, you know, it's interesting because I interviewed that woman who's credited with starting the gender reveal party, and I may not be up on her kids' lives, so you can correct me if I'm wrong, but she published something. It was right as I was finishing the book, so I don't actually remember when when that was because time is a blur now. But she had made this announcement that she was denouncing this trend she started. And she put up a picture of her older daughter, the one she had celebrated with a, a cake with pink icing, who had short hair and wore suits. And the media went wild assuming that her child was non-binary. And actually, it was really hard for her to correct people at the time and say, oh, no, this isn't about gender identity. What I'm saying is that you're connecting these ideas of who your child is going to be with their actual biological sex. And what we need to decouple is our expectations and their bodies. And so it really, maybe now her child identifies differently, but the reason she ended up denouncing them was was not really because of the older child, but because the younger child cried when she opened her Christmas present and it was, quote unquote, boy Legos and they weren't pink. Ah. And so a lot of the discussion around gender and the kind of obsession with identity really gets in the way of what I am talking about, which is the ideas that you draw from your child based on their bodies. That's where my work is, is where did you get the idea of normal from? And why is your idea of what's normal for girls so different from your idea of what's normal for boys when, you know, especially in the first six years or so, they're really just not that different. 
they're not even that different for a long time. And we're so obsessed with identity that we don't end up talking about stereotypes. And that was really her concern about the gender reveal parties, but it got totally buried and no one wanted to talk about that. And to me, the biggest problem with a gender reveal party is not just that what you're actually celebrating are your own narrow ideas about who your child is going to be, right? Right, of course. I'm a girl and now I'm going to plan out what kind of relationship I'm going to have with this person, what this girl will like and want to wear and what kind of personality she's going to have. That's a huge part of the problem is that your sex is just not that big a determinant of who you're going to love or how you're going to identify or, you know, what job you're going to have. It's a determinant of what stereotypes you're going to be exposed to. No, that makes total sense. And I appreciate that viewpoint because I think, you know, it's certainly in the zeitgeist right now due to the damage that's happening um, on the West Coast. But, you know, it's something that we should have been talking about. And, And I believe there had been waves of it in terms of what having a gender reveal party really means and why we're doing it. So I'm glad that you addressed it because it's so timely right now, but it's also in your body of work. Um, Can we talk a little bit about nature versus nurture? Because I think there are a lot of questions about this. And of course, you cover this in the book. And and I've seen many situations, right? I've seen, and I'm sure you have as well, I've seen widowers who are raising daughters who feel, if we look at the spectrum of gender, right, towards the sort of more masculine side. And then I've seen, you know, girly moms and woke dads, and they've got kids where I would say lean on the spectrum away from, you know, where they might identify gender wise. So talk to me about what you learned when it comes to nature versus nurture. Well, I think I learned something that people are learning over and over again, which is that it's a false dichotomy that how masculine or feminine we are is both because of our natural urges and because of what we're exposed to or allowed to explore. And that our personalities, our proclivities, and our identities are the result of the interplay between our biology and the culture, between our brains and the environment. And that relationship is in constant flux and changes over the course of a lifetime. And it's very hard to know. We don't raise children equitably, so we don't really know who they would be if they didn't have these gendered pressures. And I often think of that in terms of gay identity, for instance. Back in the 50s, we discovered that most people had had homosexual experiences, but they wouldn't identify as gay. Right, and right, right. all over the world, like there are men in Afghanistan having sex with other men, but they would never call themselves gay. That's just behavior. It's not identity. It's also illegal. You know, what kinds of sexualities would we have if there was no expectation of heterosexuality woven into every aspect of our society. If things weren't marked as culturally masculine or feminine, how would we develop? What if we really just tried to create toys and clothes and personality traits, you know, if kids' material and psychic worlds were not thought of as masculine and feminine, as boy-typical and girl-typical, 
I wonder who we'd be. We don't really have a way of knowing. Not right now. I mean, that's so true. We don't. And I know that there have been several parents. I think of Kate Hudson, if I remember correctly, who was raising her youngest as gender neutral. But there really aren't that many folks starting from the beginning, I suppose. Have you, in your experience or in your work, seen many parents who are attempting this in a society that is so strongly binary? I imagine it's a challenge. And I don't want to say it's rare, but I imagine that it is not as public as perhaps uh, some other things might be. Well, it isn't something that you can just do as a parent. Mm -hmm. It requires the capitalist system to reorder itself. It requires the schools to do it. I mean, the one hint of an example we have are the gender-neutral preschools in Sweden, where they really raise kids. And it's not about not having pronouns, and it's not about not having male and female humans. It's about not gendering the material and psychic worlds of those humans. So the toys aren't gendered, the colors aren't gendered, the dress-up box isn't gendered. Everybody has access to everything. You can do a certain amount as a parent, but if all the other children are going to police yours, it's not going to work. But those preschools have shown that the kids who attend them do have long-lasting, more equitable attitudes about gender, that it it does affect them Mm long-term. Now is a good time to say that most of the research about kids we might label gender nonconforming, and I mean that not as a gender identity, but as related to their behavior, Mm -hmm. that most research about those kids shows that they are more creative, Mm -hmm. they do better academically, they are more flexible emotionally. So there's a, a host of really positive attributes associated with gender nonconformity as it relates to not hewing to gender norms. So I would just encourage everyone to raise children not according to gender norms, to raise them to try to push back against them and then try to encourage your school to participate in it and then demand Target stopped gendering its toy aisles. Right, right. I haven't checked, but they were going to take the gender filtering out of the Kindle Fire. Oh, good. A little bit of progress. I I like hearing that. And it's not surprising to me, right? You know, kids who are are like, hey, why is this system in place? Who are questioning. You know, if you've got kids and families who are questioning this binary system, you know that they are out of the box thinkers, right? You know they're creative. You know they're innovative. You know that they're willing to be vulnerable because they're willing to say, no, this isn't working for me. Here is what's working for me. So it's not surprising, but I think parents need to hear that, right? Because again, we talked about the fear factor, if you will, and this idea that parents don't want anything to be wrong with their kids. We want everything to be okay. We want them to be safe and happy in this world. And, you know, when you hear about a child who is non-conforming, right, it's scary for a parent, I think. You know, for me, I'm excited by it. I'm like, yes, these norms are ridiculous. Or, you know, I'm all for it. And I know there are a group of parents who are, but I think there are many parents who are afraid and unsure of what's going to happen. And I think if you raise someone who's confident, who knows they're making their choices and why they're making their choices, they're going to be able to explain it and also encourage their peers to question it, right? And be like, well, did you ever think about 
why you don't like pink or why you don't like blue or, you know, any of those. I mean, that's sort of a basic, you know, gender color question, but there are so many other ones out there. So I love hearing the positive. I think parents need to hear the positive for sure, especially nowadays. But let's let's talk about sexuality. You tackle this. I'm so grateful for this, but it is so complicated. And I know that's like the understatement yeah. of the century. But that should be the subtitle it, of the book. It's it? complicated. So it's, it's too much to cover now, but I think you could pull out sort of what was most surprising or maybe what was most interesting to you about what you learned when it was, you know, related to sexuality and this topic? Well, one of the things that really interested me was actually back to the 19th century when the prevailing zeitgeist about women was the cult of domesticity or the cult of true womanhood. Mm -hmm. We were talking about earlier, the ultimate way to be feminine is to be in the domestic sphere, you know, to be frail, to be wearing 25 pounds of restrictive clothing and to be with other women and to let the men handle everything else. And what happens in that time is that a lot of women fall in love with each other as they're kind of cordoned off. Mm -hmm. And there Mm -hmm. are lots of documents of, you know, women who, again, the the term lesbian wasn't around much, and they might not even have identified as lesbians if it was available that, you know, there's something called situational homosexuality, which would explain, like, why men who identify straight might have sex with other men, like, in prison. Right. Great example. Also, I feel like it shows what I was talking about before, which is, what if there were no rules, you know, and what if you just open to everybody? Who knows who you'd end up with? So there was a lot of lesbianism, even among women who were not tomboys, but that's documented in the 19th century. And the tomboy-lesbian stereotype really gets going in the 1950s, which is not coincidentally also the time of the rise of the housewife and the Ah, super feminine clothing that's kind of like bustle right. corset light, right? Yes. After the right. roll up your sleeves, Rosie the Riveter of World War II, which is like women go into the men's sphere and work and take over running the households and then the men come back from war and the women are supposed to go back to the domestic sphere. And so any woman who is masculine after that is stereotyped as a lesbian. And there's a lot of that pulp 1950s lesbian literature. And that recedes a little bit in the 1970s, which is also when feminism became more popular and when women started to deliberately once again try to raise tomboys. Right. I mean, it makes sense for sure. It's always connected to war and the economy. Hmm. Our idea of how women and girls should be ebbs and flows with war and the economy over and over again. It's it's really fascinating. And the truth is that, like, some childhood tomboys will be lesbians. Some of them will be super butch. Some butch lesbians will not have been very butch children. Right. Some tomboys will be feminine lesbians. Some tomboys will be feminine heterosexual women. There isn't a way to fully predict who your child is based on how much they line up to gender norms or not. That's so fascinating. But also, like, we're dealing with humans. Hooray, right? It's like we're not dealing with robots. Things are not predictable. And I think that's part of why 
you know, labeling is safe, right? We're all, we're kind of an anxious society. So it's like if labeling and we can put people in boxes and then we can predict and then we will know. And when you take a step back, you realize, hey, wait a second, we're all humans. And if we could exist in a place where there weren't, like you said, where there weren't rules, where you could pick who you wanted to be with based on how you felt about them and not necessarily what was in their pants or under their shirt or, you know, whatever else there is. What a different place, what an interesting place it would be. And I wish that I could imagine how that would be because I feel like we live in such a binary world. You know, perhaps our children will see something different, you know. And and I know that I think of my teenager who identifies as bi and has friends who identify as pan. And I think that this next generation, Gen Z and even younger, they're really opening the gates to this in an exciting way. And I, I just love how you have taken this concept really and tackled it historically, but also given given parents takeaways, right? So it's like we can read this and not only understand the term and what we're looking at, but also then like as the book title says, right, the surprising history and the future of Girls Who Dare. So the book is available everywhere that you buy books. We love to support small indie booksellers. So please make sure you head out and order. You can order online. If you have one in your town, you'll find it there. If it's not there, ask for it. Go to your library, ask for it. And Lisa, where can folks find you on the web and on social media if they've got questions for you or want to learn more about your work? Well, I'm on all the traditional social media channels at Lisa Sone Davis, Instagram and Twitter and whatnot. And um, yeah, that's best. I try to write up little, very complicated tomboy bios on Instagram whenever I find the time. <laughs> I love it. I love that. All right. And so now it's time for our cool books of the week. Cool picks of the week. And Lisa, I'm going to go first. I'll give you mine and then you can share yours. I'm excited to hear what it is. Um, I'm not sure if you've seen this series, but my cool pick is called America Divided. I'm not sure if you've heard of it. It was on Epics, but now you can actually do a free trial on Amazon Prime and watch it. And it is very eye-opening. So it was from a few years ago, but it's super timely. It actually tackles important issues in our country right now. And what I love is it actually uses different celebrities who are working. They kind of work as investigative journalists slash hosts. You know, like they're doing investigations on their own, but also you hear them in the voiceover throughout the series. It's obviously a documentary, but they tackle like the Flint water crisis, the opioid crisis in Dayton, Ohio, immigration in Texas. It is so timely. I've made my way almost all the way through season one. I'm looking forward to season two. So I highly recommend this. This is not light watching. (laughs) This is this is heavy duty. But just given what's going on in the world today, I already feel so much more informed by watching this series. So America Divided, it's on Epics, but you can watch it on Amazon Prime. All right, Lisa, you're up. What is your cool pick of the week? Well, we discovered this app called Radio... Radi- I don't know if it's pronounced Radio or Radio. It's got a lot of O's at the end. <laughs> and it goes well with your pick because it's really about the celebration of diversity. It's the kind of the opposite side of Divided. It's a way to unite. It has a map of the world and you can click on any country and any time frame and it will play you music from there. That is so cool. It's really great. I took a cab ride in the 90s and the most beautiful music I ever heard in my life was playing and I asked the driver what it was and he said it's gospel music from Ghana and I had never been able to find this anywhere that I got this app (laughs) and I did 1960s Ghana and um 
And I got like not the exact thing, but I got to finally be reunited with a little bit of this. That's so exciting! It's awesome. Cool. Okay, and so we're gonna link that up. We'll link up America Divided. We'll link up your article that went viral, your book, and everything else over on our Spawned podcast page. That's over at CoolMomPicks.com. Well, thanks so much for joining us for another episode of Spawned. Huge thanks to our engineer, John Bowen. If you've got a moment, you can leave us a five-star review. We would greatly appreciate your time. You know, when you do that and when you subscribe and you download our episodes, it actually helps other listeners like you find us. And if you've got great ideas for the show, you just want to say hi. We're on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. It's just at CoolMomPix. You can also email us, spawned at CoolMomPix.com. And head over to Facebook. We've got our own podcast community, aptly named the Spawned Podcast Community, where we can chat about show topics and pretty much anything else that you would like to talk about. Thank you so much for listening to Spawned. This is Kristen. Have a great day. Hey.